This episode is based on a memoir written by former special FBI agent Jeffrey Reinick and authored by award-winning journalist Mary Lee Strong, titled In the Name of the Children, An FBI Agent's Relentless Pursuit of the Nation's Worst Predators. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Sensitive content involving violence and sexual abuse against children may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I have acknowledged yesterday that we have recovered uh, considerable evidence. We now believe there is a connection between Armstrong's murder and the murders of Carol's son, her daughter, Julie's son, and their family friend, Sylvina Peloso, all of whom were last seen the night of February 15th. I've asked myself whether we could have done anything differently that might have prevented the murder of Joey Armstrong. I've struggled with that issue for the last 24 hours and continue to do so. Yosemite is a national park, stretching over nearly 1,200 square miles of rugged terrain in Northern California. Each year, the park draws millions of tourists from all over the world who visit to take in the soaring granite cliffs, the mountain meadows, and thick sequoia forest. But in 1999, tragedy struck one of America's natural wonders after it became apparent that a serial rapist murderer was on the loose. investigators eventually came to identify several suspects. But due to the lack of concrete evidence, were unable to make any formal charges. However, the investigation took a dramatic turn after an FBI agent named Jeffrey Reinick brought in a local for questioning. Because of the humanity he showed, he was able to obtain a shocking and unexpected confession to four murders. Join me now as we take a look into the horrific Yosemite murders that captivated an entire country. We'll also examine the unique empathy-based interrogation tactics used by Jeffrey Reinick, making it possible for him to not only gain a confession for the Yosemite murders, but countless others in the course of his career. In February of 1999, a woman named Carol Sund decided to take her 15-year-old daughter Juliana and her 16-year-old friend Silvina, who had been visiting from Argentina, on a road trip. During Carol's senior year of high school, she had an opportunity to spend an entire year abroad as an exchange student, living with an Argentinian family on their cattle ranch. It was there that she met Raquel Palazzo, who became a lifelong friend. 26 years after they met, Carol and Raquel remained friends, and over the years, their daughters too became friends, Juliana and Silvina. It was in 1999 that Silvina decided to also try living abroad for a semester, just as Carol had done so many years ago living with her mother. 
Both families agreed that Sylvina would spend a term living with the sons while she attended Juliana's high school. Carol's son, her husband Jens, and Juliana lived in a relatively small town of Eureka, California, with a population of roughly 27,000 people. Eureka is located on the shores of Humboldt Bay, 270 miles north of San Francisco. It was the sun's intent to expose Sylvina to as many of California's tourist destinations as possible while she stayed with them, including some of the breathtaking views the state has to offer. It was over the President's Day weekend of February 1999 that Carol decided to take the girls on an exploration through California to Yosemite National Park. Following the trip to Yosemite, Carol's husband had planned to then fly with Sylvina and the younger children to Arizona to visit the Grand Canyon. It was an action-packed week that they had planned for her and were no doubt excited to be able to share the natural beauty their country had to offer. Carol was known for being meticulously organized, especially when it came to traveling, and so, as expected, had the entire weekend planned with precision. After flying from Eureka to San Francisco, Carol had planned for her and Sylvina to make their way to Stockton, where Juliana had been competing in a cheerleading competition. From there, the three would then follow Carol's itinerary, which had them making their way to Yosemite National Park in a car she had rented. After arriving in El Portal, a small town that borders the park, Carol checked her and the girls into a hotel called the Cedar Lodge, presumably because it sits just outside the western entrance of Yosemite. Although the lodge comprised of over 200 rooms, Carol and the girls were the only guests to be lodging there that night. After spending an entire day hiking the beautiful park's trails on Monday, the three of them headed back to their room for the evening. Their intentions were to return the following day in hopes of stealing a few more hours exploring the park before making their way back to San Francisco, where they were to catch a flight home Tuesday evening. Jens later reported that Carol had called him that evening to give an update on their day. After finishing a meal at a restaurant attached to the lodge, the trio rented a few movies and settled in for the night. The waitress who had served them was the last to see them alive at 7.30 p.m. On Tuesday, February 16th, Jens waited for Carol and the girls to arrive at the airport, but they never arrived. When he called the Cedar Lodge to find out if they were still there, he discovered they were gone, but had never checked out. Their luggage was gone, and the keys were left in the room. The following day, when Yen still hadn't heard from his wife or the girls, he decided to call the sheriff's department in Mariposa County, where the Cedar Lodge is located, and reported them missing. Three days later, part of Carol's wallet was discovered in downtown Modesto, California, containing her credit cards. A search conducted by several local agencies from the surrounding area soon ensued. Hundreds of police officers and FBI agents scoured over 1,000 square miles by foot, along with helicopters and planes, desperately searching for any sign 
of the three missing females. Even with the use of search and rescue dogs, along with using sonar and radar equipment, they were still unable to find any trace of them or the red Pontiac Grand Prix they had rented. It was as if they had vanished into thin air. It was then that Carol's parents posted a reward for the safe return of their loved ones, including a second reward for anyone who could locate the missing vehicle. Still, nothing. FBI agent Jeffrey Reinick, who had been assigned as the lead on the case, knew they needed to focus on the place the women had last been seen. Jeffrey found it equally as important to note the items that had been left, as well as the items that were missing from room 509. Their luggage was gone, but the keys had been left behind in their room. There had also been a few other things left. A bag with some souvenirs, an apple, a bottle of tomato juice in the fridge, and the movies they had rented. What was missing from the room included a pink blanket from one of the beds as well as a pillowcase. Other things to note were some soaking wet towels in the bathroom and small bits of fabric that were found on the hotel room carpet. Jeffrey Reinick fully intended on interviewing anyone who may have come into contact with the three women during their stay at Cedar Lodge and his first person of interest was a 37-year-old handyman named Carrie Stainer, who had been hired two years prior. Interestingly enough, Carrie Stainer's family had experienced some media attention back in the 70s after his younger brother Stephen was abducted when he was seven. When Carrie was only 11 years old, his brother was kidnapped on his way home from school. For seven years, the family anguished over what had happened to their missing boy, only later to be reunited with them after he showed up at a police station. But he wasn't alone. In a courageous move, he had saved another young boy who had been kidnapped by his abductor. It was later discovered that Stephen had been lured into a car by a man named Kenneth Purnell. For the next seven years, Purnell repeatedly molested and raped Stephen, moving him from place to place around California. Purnell had changed Stephen's name to Dennis and convinced him that his parents no longer wanted him, and that he now had full custody of the young boy. Purnell passed himself off as Stephen's father while making several other attempts to abduct other young boys. Not wanting the five-year-old boy to endure the same living hell he had, Stephen risked his own safety to help him escape. After Purnell had left for work one evening, Stephen hitchhiked with the boy back to his hometown. Unable to locate his home, Stephen's next plan of action was to head to the local police department where he instructed the young boy to walk in by himself. But shortly after walking in, police spotted Stephen, and after detaining him for questioning, discovered his true identity. Although Purnell was later tried and convicted in two separate trials for the abduction of both boys, he only served five years in prison. 
the Stainer's lawyers decided not to prosecute for rape and molestation, presumably in order to protect him from the stigma that may have resulted at the time around male sexual abuse. Needless to say, the traumatic ordeal had a devastating impact on the Stainer family, and later, an American TV miniseries was made about the whole ordeal called I Know My First Name Is Stephen. Stephen had a hard time adjusting to being back at home, and his parents found it difficult to look at him without seeing their seven-year-old boy who had gone missing. Carrie also struggled coming to terms with everything their family had experienced, later stating that he felt he'd been neglected by his parents as they grieved over their missing child. After conducting a polygraph on Carrie Stainer regarding the disappearance of the three women, which he passed, Carrie was lowered on the suspect list. It wasn't long before several other suspects emerged, which soon became the FBI's primary focus. After investigating the backgrounds of other Cedar Lodge employees, it was discovered that their janitor named Billy Joe Strange had a history of violence towards women. Although he had no criminal record, he had dated a woman whose husband died under mysterious circumstances. FBI agent Reinick was surprised to discover that the man had been stabbed several times in the back with a pair of scissors and had drowned in a creek. But the death had been ruled a suicide, and their suspicion of Strange only amplified following his polygraph test. Not only did he fail it, he became enraged at one point, attempting to attack the examiner while being questioned. However, Jeffrey Reinick wasn't so convinced he was their man. Leaning on years of experience interrogating suspects, while understanding the limitation of polygraph testing, he suspected that the stress of being accused for murdering three women could have easily set him off. But as long as the higher-ups had their sights on Billy Joe Strange, Reinick was prohibited from conducting any more interviews of Cedar Lodge employees. Jeffrey's belief that someone else was responsible was beginning to become an unpopular one among those working on the case, and he soon found himself being slowly distanced further and further from the investigation. On March 18th, they finally had a breakthrough that they'd been waiting for. A man who'd been out target shooting came across the rental car. The car had been set on fire on a logging side road in Stanislaus National Forest, about 100 feet in from State Route 108. The highway was located just north of Yosemite National Park. When Jeffrey Reinig showed up on the location, he was told he wasn't allowed to be present on the scene and was instructed to head to the command post and answer the tip line. He recalls it being a humiliating point in his career. But it was also an order that would limit him from a tactical point of view. Jeffrey would later discover that two bodies had been found in the trunk of the burnt-out rental. One of the skulls was clearly that of an adult, and the other was of a youth. They weren't able to conclude right away who the two victims were, but assumed that the adult was Carol and that the other body was one of the girls. But which one? And where was the other missing teen? Once again, 
a full-on search proceeded, including four-wheelers and dogs that searched the forested area. Jeffrey recalls thinking the location of the dump site was an important clue. Probably more important and most helpful towards the investigation was a roll of undeveloped film. Amazingly, the time-stamped photos made it possible for investigators to establish a timeline of the three women before they went missing. The photos included one of Juliana with her arm around Sylvina standing in front of Yosemite Falls. Another shows the two skating in the Half Dome Village ice rink located in the park. Another shows the two girls eating a piece of cake at the restaurant beside Cedar Lodge. The last two photos included Juliana in a handstand wearing her PJs in the hotel room, and the other was of Carol and Sylvina sitting in their beds under the covers. What stood out to Reinick was that Carol had mentioned to her husband the night before they went missing that they had intended on heading back to the park for a few hours the next day before driving back to San Francisco for their flight. If they had, they most likely would have taken more photos similar to the previous day, but they hadn't. Jeff Reinick and many other investigators working on the case became convinced that the women must have been kidnapped from their hotel room, possibly even murdered there, but trying to convince their superiors was another story. They suspected that the women had been killed either where their car had been found or somewhere along their route back to San Francisco. The other theory they had been bouncing around involved a local meth addict named Eugene Dykes who had lived close to where the car was found. The thought was that Eugene and Billy Joe Strange, who had been serving time in the same prison at the same time, had at some point met and concocted a plan to rob tourists in the Yosemite area once they got out. But Reinick believed that that theory was pretty far-fetched. Reinick didn't believe these murders were motivated by robbery, but by sex. When Jeff Reinick vocalized his thoughts, on how ridiculous he thought the robbery theory was, he more or less knew he had signed the death certificate to his career. It didn't take long for Jeffrey to discover he had been removed as the lead from the case and replaced by a younger subordinate who had been previously working as their public information officer. Reinick once again felt humiliated and unappreciated. He felt as though he'd let his co-workers down but most importantly, the families of the missing and murdered women. Forensic testing was finally able to conclude that the two bodies found in the trunk were that of Carol and Sylvina. Soon after this devastating confirmation, a handwritten note with a map appeared at the FBI's Modesto Resident Agency. The map showed a vista point near Don Pedro Lake, a reservoir located about 50 miles from Yosemite and 30 miles from where the burnt rental had been found. Also included on the map was an X, 
The message was short, only one sentence, and it read, We had fun with this one. After searching on foot, investigators and officers were unable to find a body. However, it didn't take long after a cadaver dog was brought in to find Juliana's body hidden under some brush. Juliana had been bound with duct tape around her ankles, and her neck had been brutally slashed. It's difficult to imagine just how terrified Juliana must have been in her final moments. And who could have done such a thing? Because the three victims had been spread over multiple counties, the special agent in charge became even more convinced that they were looking for more than one perpetrator. While they continued to interrogate Eugene Dykes, Billy Joe Strange, and another crooked man who they believed to be an accomplice, Jeffrey Reinick continued to check on other leads. After four months working away from home, he finally returned back to Sacramento to be with his family. Soon after that, other agents who had been called out to Modesto also returned back home. Without any new leads, they started to scale back the amount of resources they had initially assigned to the case. More than 10,000 interviews had been conducted over the course of the investigation, and Reinick's superiors felt they had all the possible perpetrators in hand. Six months had gone by, and the Yosemite National Park was considered to be safe again for the millions of tourists who vacation there every summer. That was until Thursday, July 22nd, when a young woman who was living in a cabin near the Yosemite Valley failed to show up at a friend's house. Joey Armstrong had been working for a non-profit institute teaching children about nature and wildlife in the park. She'd been staying in an area called Foresta, which comprised of about 40 houses scattered about, mostly inhabited by staff from the park. Joey lived with another roommate and her fiancé. Both had planned trips away on the same weekend, leaving Joey by herself. Joey, who had never spent a night alone in the cabin before, decided she would only spend one night by herself, and then would head to Sausalito to spend another night with her friend. But she never arrived. Her friend then called police, and a ranger went to the cabin to check on her. When the ranger arrived, he noticed right away that the front door to the cabin was open. There was no sign of Joey, and eerily, her stereo was playing. Her truck was parked nearby and packed with her things. Also found were a pair of sunglasses on her porch that appeared to be stepped on. It didn't take long for a search party to begin, and by the afternoon, searchers discovered a woman's body that was partially submerged in a creek only a hundred yards away from her cabin. As horrific as this discovery was, it was about to get worse. When they pulled the woman's body from the creek, they were shocked to find that her head was missing. After several more hours of searching, they finally found the woman's head 
which had sunk to the bottom of a pool of water, and it was Joey. Some of the brush leading up to the creek had been trampled. It's important to note that Juliana's throat had also been cut, and so severely it had nearly caused her head to be decapitated. Despite the similarities, Reinick's superiors believed the murders were not related. On July 24th, Reinick was asked to pick up a witness who happened to be hanging out in a nudist resort. The witness was Carrie Stainer, the Cedar Lodge handyman whose brother had been kidnapped many years prior. All Reinick had been told was that Carrie was being brought in because he might have seen something related to Joey's murder. In fact, Carrie was being brought in based on far more than that. A neighbor of Joey's recalled seeing a baby blue SUV with white stripes parked near her cabin around the time she went missing. A park ranger had also reported giving a lift to a man whose vehicle met the same description and had broken down nearby the scene of the crime. He recalled dropping the man off at the Cedar Lodge where he said he lived. After a bolo, which is a be-on-the-lookout alert, had been issued for the vehicle, two deputies came across Stainer's vehicle, parked by a well-known skinny-dipping spot. They then dispatched two other park rangers for backup. They found Carrie sunbathing nude and smoking a joint. When questioned by the deputies, Stainer denied being anywhere near where Joey lived when she went missing. When the deputies asked to search his truck, he agreed. But when they came across his backpack, Stainer wouldn't allow them to search it. They would need to get a search warrant. In the meantime, they took photographs of Stainer's tire treads so they could be compared to the impressions they had made of the tire tracks outside of Joey's cabin. Eventually, they were able to search Stainer's backpack and found an X-Acto knife and a novel about a serial killer who cuts women open while they're still alive. As disturbing as the book was, in conjunction with the X-Acto knife, none of it was enough to connect Stainer to the murder, so they let him return back to the lodge. Almost immediately, Carrie tried selling his things to other employees and told them he was thinking of moving away. The next day, when investigators showed up to the lodge to speak with him again, he was gone. That's when he headed to the nudist resort, where he pitched a tent and planned on staying for a few nights. But Reinick hadn't been briefed on any of that before showing up to the resort to pick up Stainer. He had been left completely in the dark. As they entered the resort, someone mentioned to Reinick that the man he was looking for was in the restaurant, fully clothed. As he approached Carrie, he stood up and immediately put his hands on top of his head. Reinick told Stainer he had no idea why he was there, other than to ask him if he would mind coming with him to answer a few questions. He assured Stainer that after they were done, he would give him a ride back to the resort. Carrie agreed, and got into the back of Reinick's car. Even though he wasn't under arrest, 
Reinick decided to read him his rights as a cautionary measure. As they drove to the station, Reinick engaged in small talk with Stainer, such as, what's it like at a nudist resort? They also talked about movies, and Reinick mentioned to Stainer he reminded him an awful lot of an actor named Tom Laughlin, who played Billy Jack in the film Billy Jack, a classic martial arts action film from the 70s. They also talked about Stainer's brother, and Reinick mentioned he had mostly worked on cases involving missing children. Carrie opened up quite a bit to Reinick, expressing how his brother's kidnapping had affected the whole family. Jeffrey also shared personal experiences with Carrie, describing how he almost lost his own child to an illness, and how he had hid emotionally from his family, because it was so painful for him to deal with. As the two pulled up to the station, Carrie started to recite lines word for word from the Billy Jack film Reinick had mentioned earlier, and then he casually smiled at Reinick. As they walked in, Reinick told Stainer that someone else would likely be asking him questions, but that he would wait around to give him a ride back. It was Saturday, and there was barely anyone in the building. Jeffrey was then asked to do a preliminary interview with Carrie because he'd been left in the dark for so much of the latter part of the investigation, he assumed someone else would be sent in to take over to do a more in-depth interview. Another agent suggested to bring in one of their best polygraph examiners to gather the most information for Reinick as he wasn't up to speed. While they were waiting for the examiner to arrive, Reinick realized he had interrupted Stainer while he'd been eating his breakfast and he and some of the other agents hadn't eaten all day either. So Reinick decided to order a pizza for everyone. While they waited, Reinick had an informal conversation with Stainer. Carrie mentioned he had an uncle who had been murdered, but it was still an unsolved case. Jeffrey offered to look into it for him if he wanted. Just then, they were notified that the pizza and the polygraph examiner had arrived at the same time. Jeff asked Carrie which he preferred to do first, eat the pizza or take the polygraph. His response shocked Reinick. Stainer said, let's skip the polygraph, and I'd like to speak to you alone. Reinick believed that Stainer wanted to speak to him privately about something other than the murder of Joey, perhaps the murder of his uncle. Reinick then left the room and let the other agent know that Stainer had requested to speak to him by himself. When he returned back to the interview room, he found Stainer slumped over in his chair, with his head down and sobbing. He then said, Jeff, I'm a bad person, and I've done some really bad things. He went on to tell Reinick that he had suffered from disturbing and obsessive thoughts about molesting and killing girls. Jeff's reaction is probably not what you might expect from an FBI agent. Jeffrey responded with reassurance and understanding. He told Carrie, just because someone does bad things doesn't mean they're a bad person. He offered to talk about what he'd been dealing with and said, we'll figure this out together. Stainer confided in Reinick that when he was 11 years old, the same time his brother was abducted, he had been molested by his uncle. 
not the uncle that had been murdered, but another uncle. He admitted that since that happened, he struggled immensely. He talked about not being able to have a normal relationship with a woman in any shape or form, and about the constant state of anxiety he was in. Reinick tried to console him, thinking that Carrie just needed someone to talk to about the abuse he had experienced in his life. Carrie then said to Reinick, I can give you closure. Confused, Reinick asked him about what? This and more, Carrie responded. Astonished, Jeffrey excused himself from the room once again to consult with the other agent. He told the other agent he thought Carrie might be the man they were looking for in connection with Joey's murder. Reinick then went back into the room and asked Stainer directly what he meant by more. Carrie responded by saying, You know what I mean. He was being cryptic. Reinick didn't want to ask the wrong question, make any assumptions, or push too hard in fear of Carrie shutting down altogether. He felt he was on to something. One more? Reinick asked. More, he replied. Jeffrey Reinick's mind started to race trying to think of any other cold case that had happened in the area. And the only one he could think of was the three women killed in Yosemite. The murders his superiors still insisted were committed by men they had behind bars. Reinick then just came right out and asked if he was talking about the tourists. And Stainer slowly nodded yes. But before he could tell Reinick anything more, he offered to exchange a confession for something Jeffrey could not possibly deliver. He asked to see photos of little girls. Reinick questioned back, child pornography? You know, pictures and video of little girls. Despite the feeling of rage that was now building up inside of Reinick, he knew he had developed a foundation of trust with Stainer and he couldn't allow himself to break from that in order to get the information they needed. He told Stainer he would pass the request up the chain of command, knowing full well there was no way they would agree to it. In the meantime, Jeffrey moved Stainer into the polygraph room where there was a two-way mirror. Jeff brought the pizza into the room with them, and another agent joined them. On the other side of the mirror, was the polygraph examiner and another agent, who were there to observe Stainer's behavior. As they ate the pizza, Stainer made comments like, This is going to be my last pizza. I never got to see Star Wars. Reinick reassured Stainer it would give him peace, probably a feeling he hadn't felt in a long time. Carrie then said that it meant he could die with a clear conscience. Carrie went on to say how much he loved life, enjoying the time with his friends and nature. But then the next minute, he felt he could kill everyone on the face of the earth. He said that it just mentally tortures you, constantly back and forth like a tennis match. Reinick encouraged him to take control back and to get rid of the demons that had been haunting him for so long demons he'd been battling since he was six years old. 
Stainer remembered back to his very first disturbing thought, which involved trapping a neighborhood girl in an underground bunker. As it turns out, Steiner's family was riddled with mental illness and incidences of sexual abuse going back five generations. Carrie's father had allegedly molested his sisters. One of his sisters would later say that Carrie too started acting inappropriate towards her, peeping on her and touching her when she was ten. A cousin had also said that Steiner hid under their beds and secretly videotaped them in the bathroom and bedroom. One of the ways Carrie's uncle had groomed him before he started molesting him was by showing him photos of young girls. While continuing to speak to Reinick and the other agent in the room, Stainer started putting other terms on the table in exchange for his full confession. He wanted his family to receive the reward money that Carol's son's parents had offered for information. He wanted to be sent to a federal prison that was being built near his hometown. Reinick told Stainer that both requests were totally out of his hands. A few times, Jeffrey found himself needing to leave the room just so he could compose himself. He knew what was at stake, and he knew he needed to encourage the part of Carrie Stainer that wanted to do the right thing. What Reinick did next was not taught to him at Quantico. It was something he learned from the other agents he admired and from his own personal experiences. He empathized with Carrie Stainer and tried to understand everything he had gone through. He told Stainer that he didn't believe he was a psychopath. Stainer then asked Reinick to explain what a psychopath was. He told him that a psychopath is someone that could kill a three-year-old girl at two o'clock and report to work at four. Stainer responded by saying, that's basically what he did. Reinick told him, you're doing the hardest, bravest thing in your life, and I'm honored that you trusted me to do it with. Stainer told Reinick his biggest concern about confessing was what his family would think of him, yet he continued to insist he would need to see child pornography before confessing. Reinick asked, if you're so concerned about what your family will think of you, imagine what they'll think when they hear you asked for child pornography before you confessed. Stainer pleaded again for it. It was the most pathetic thing for Reinick to witness. Stainer asked, what harm is there to show me a little child pornography compared to the murders of four people? Reinick then asked in good faith, while they waited for the decision, if he could share some details about Joey's murder. He agreed. He said he'd stopped at a bridge near Joey's cabin when he spotted her. She was lugging duffel bags and other items into her truck and was walking back and forth to her cabin. She appeared to be alone, but Carrie decided to do a little reconnaissance in order to be absolutely certain. Still, not seeing anyone, he approached her and engaged her in some small talk. As he spoke with her, he slowly inched up 
closer and closer to her. He told her he'd once seen Bigfoot in the area and asked if she'd ever seen any creatures. She said she hadn't, but one of her roommates might have. He then asked her if any of them were around so he could ask them. She said no, and the moment she turned her back on him, Stainer told Reinick he took out a gun that he'd been hiding in his waistband and pulled it on her. Before Joy could react, he shoved her into the cabin and began duct-taping her wrists behind her back and taped her mouth shut. Stainer said she fought back quite a bit and even broke through her restraints twice. He told her he wasn't going to hurt her and just wanted money and needed her to cooperate. He then walked her out to his vehicle and placed her lying down in the back seat. Surprisingly, no one witnessed any of this happening. Stainer planned to drive her to a secluded area where he would sexually assault her. But as he started to drive, Joey began fighting for her life. She was kicking and screaming through the gag, trying desperately to break free. Stainer started to panic and pulled a knife on her, hoping to threaten her back into submission. But she fought even harder and screamed even louder. Miraculously, she managed to push herself out of the passenger side window. After hitting the ground, Joey got to her feet and started running. Stainer stopped his vehicle and chased after her. When he caught up to her, he realized they were in plain sight and tried to drag her to a secluded area, but she continued to fight him. Stainer felt at that point his fantasy had been destroyed and he just needed to kill her. That's when he dragged her down to the creek and cut her throat several times. He had left his truck running, so ran back up to turn it off. He then returned to the creek, and that's when he said he cut off her head. He then admitted to holding her head for a while and washing off the blood from her face and hair before placing it back down into the water. When Reinick asked why he had done that, he said he didn't really know. He just wanted to see her face. Reinick believed he had beheaded her as an expression of power and control, but also because of a twisted sense of intimacy. Stainer told Reinick that he'd never intended on killing any of the women, but had nowhere to keep them afterward. Reinick then asked Stainer if he was sorry for what he'd done, and if he could, would he undo the crimes he'd committed? And he responded by saying, Of course, all of them. He then asked Stainer to do something that was another tactic that hadn't been taught to him at Quantico. It was something he had watched another agent do after a confession, and that was to ask the perpetrator to write a letter of apology. It was a gesture he believed had therapeutic benefits. 
At first, Steiner said he couldn't do it, but after some convincing, he agreed he would try. By this point, FBI agent Jeffrey Reinick was exhausted, and he still hadn't gotten the details of the three other murders. Although Steiner had fully confessed to Joey's murder, he was holding back from giving a full confession for the other three until he found out if his terms had been accepted. Reinick's patience was wearing thin. It had been an emotionally, mentally, and physically exhausting day, one he had not expected to experience when he woke up that morning. Reinick then showed Stainer a photo of Carol, Juliana, and Sylvina, and asked him if they looked familiar. He nodded yes. Reinick told him that the women in their families were not at peace, and that the hard part was over. He told Stainer he needed to make a choice for his family, for the families of the victims, but most importantly, he needed to make a choice for himself. Stainer then remained silent, for what felt like an eternity to Reinick. Finally, Stainer responded by saying, Let's do it. Stainer first started off by telling Reinick that the three women had not been his originally intended targets. He had actually planned to kill his girlfriend and her two daughters. He explained that she wasn't really his girlfriend and he didn't really like her. What he liked was that she had two girls that were 8 and 11 years old. He admitted he planned to kill his girlfriend and then rape her two young daughters on Valentine's Day. Fortunately, a caretaker had come by and Carrie lost his nerve. When he got back to Cedar Lodge, he recalls walking around the grounds and spotting the Red Grand Prix parked around the 500 rooms. He said the curtain to room 509 was open, and when he looked in, he could see Carol, Juliana, and Sylvina. He admitted that he'd been scoping out other possible targets at the lodge for over a year. Stainer felt that the three women were vulnerable because there was no sign of a man. He said he knocked on their door, announcing that there had been a leak in the West Wing, but Carol refused to let him in. Stainer told Reinick that for the longest time, she spoke to him through the window and refused him entry three times. Each time, he kept increasing the consequences that could arise from the leak and her refusal to allow him to gain entry into their room. Only after he threatened to go to the manager and have them move to another room, she let him in. Her instincts had been right not to trust him. When he came in, he went into the bathroom and pulled down the fan as if he was really looking into the problem. But when he came out of the bathroom, he had a gun in his hand. He told Carol and the girls that he only wanted money, and if they did as they were told, no one would get hurt. He then bound and gagged the two girls and moved them into the bathroom. He then tied Carol's hands to her feet so she couldn't move. Once she was totally subdued, he then knelt on her back and strangled her to death. 
the girls had no idea that Carol was now dead. Stainer then carried Carol's body to the rental and placed her in the trunk. Reinick didn't want to hear any more, but had to compose himself. Stainer continued by telling Reinick how he then ordered the girls out of the bathroom and into the bedroom. He then cut their clothes off without realizing he was leaving bits of fabric behind his evidence. Sylvina was by this point sobbing uncontrollably, which was ruining the fantasy Stainer had created in his mind. He found her distracting and annoying, so he decided to bring her into the bathroom, where he strangled her as well. Reinick could feel the anger inside of him welling up, but he knew he had to remain calm and focused on the task at hand. Stainer said that after he left the bathroom, he could still hear Sylvina making noises, so he returned back and covered her nose with duct tape to ensure her breathing would stop. As he described his actions, he did so with zero emotion. He continued on to say, that he had then sexually assaulted Juliana for hours. Juliana had asked him if he was going to kill her, and he didn't respond. Amidst the terror of the unfolding events, Juliana complied with all of Stainer's demands. In doing so, Stainer had formed a warped perception that he and Juliana had developed a special bond while in reality, Juliana was simply trying to save her life. Stay tuned for part two, where you'll hear more of Carrie Stainer's gruesome confession. We'll also introduce you to former FBI agent Jeffrey Reinick himself. He speaks openly about his empathy-based approach interviewing suspects and the personal toll it took on him to bear parts of his soul with murderers. I want to thank Jeffrey Reinick for taking the time to talk to us. You'll hear more from him in part two. We'll also talk about his book, but if you want to check it out before then, we've provided a link in our show notes where you can purchase the book and also a review from the New York Times. I would like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Alexandra, Daniel M., Alex D., Ford W., Emily H., Rosemary H., Jamie P., and Elsa H. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts. The True Crime Enthusiast. Hello all, my name's Paul and I'm the creator and host of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that looks at and recounts a variety of cases from the shores of the UK. Some are solved, some are unsolved, but they always tend to be the more obscure and unfamiliar. On the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, you'll find tales ranging from teenage vampires to sex-crazed killer farmers, from exorcisms gone wrong in the most extreme manner to the most horrific mask-wearing maniacs that you can imagine. Each tale is as true as the sky is blue. 
and the UK claims the lot. So if you're intrigued, then why not join me each week as I trawl through the archives for these and much more. You can find me on iTunes, Spotify and pretty much wherever you grab your shows from. So I hope you can join me and become enthusiastic about the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. And voice of the victim. I'm Ryan. And I'm Rosie. We are the Voice of the Victim podcast. Every Thursday, we discuss cases that have been influenced by abuse in some way and try to make sense of these senseless things. We also try to identify the missed opportunities where people could have made a difference in the future of the victim. We hope to help others know what to look for so we can protect ourselves and our children. Subscribe to us on your favorite app and help us spread our message. And remember, if you see something, say something. We are all the voice of the victim. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run